it's good intellectual work, it's stimulating. And if you're successful at it, you can look back and actually recognize that you have made a difference in many people's lives. That's the voice of Mark Altmeyer, founder and CEO of Arvel Therapeutics, headquartered in Zug, Switzerland. Listen in now to hear Mark's thoughts about leadership and how Arvel is working to bring new solutions to people living with epilepsy and CNS disorders. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. Today I'm speaking with Mark Altmeyer, founder and CEO of Arvel Therapeutics, headquartered in Zug, Switzerland. Welcome to BioBoss, Mark. Thank you, John. I appreciate the opportunity to have the conversation with you. How did you find yourself here at Arvel Therapeutics? I was working at uh, a company that was focused on uh, products for Alzheimer's. Uh, unfortunately for patients especially, uh, the products uh, in our pipeline did not um, succeed in clinical trials. And, and so we started a significant effort for business development. The company I was at uh, ultimately did a couple of deals in gene therapy. So they really committed themselves to, to that area of medicine. Uh, but in our efforts to do uh, our business development, we came across uh, the product Synovamate, which uh, I felt was, uh, you know, unique in the in the respect that it was highly differentiated against the market's greatest unmet need, which is more efficacy. And so, you know, we put together a small internal team to uh, really uh, diligence uh, the opportunity and actually then move forward to uh, gain the license as well as uh, uh, create the funding for the company. Several founders I've spoken with said part of the part of the challenge when you're first starting up is to know when to quit looking. So as one looks as you were for the right opportunity and, and you saw it, was it clear enough that you said, yeah, I know this is where I want to go next? Or is it a process of looking and looking and saying, yeah, I think this is it. How long does that take to figure out? In this particular case, um, it was more self-evident. And the reason I say that is I've spent years, as many in the industry have done, looking at different business development opportunities, and, and you're always in that gray area. Is it different? Will it be different? Will it be successful? When's the next uh, you know, data milestone? Do we wait till then or not? In this case, you know, the SK program, SK Biopharmaceuticals program, was really well-developed. They'd created some, some really interesting efficacy data. Um, and then there was a few questions uh, around, okay, well, what are the regulators gonna think? Uh, do you have to do any extra clinical work? Um, how would you actually commercialize this? Can it actually get a reasonable price in a market that's highly genericized? Uh, but for me, uh, to actually have the efficacy question answered, to, to know that this drug had substantial differentiation was already a huge way towards being comfortable that this was this was an asset worth uh, going after and, and building a company around. And did you consider at any point thinking, well, this looks like a really strong asset. Maybe I'll take this to a big company and I'll build it within their big company as opposed to, I'll just have to start this thing from scratch. I, I think there were already big companies that were looking at it. Again, I, I don't really have complete visibility into who was talking to uh, SK at the time. Um, so for us, it was much more of a, uh, an opportunity to say, wait, this is a unique asset. There's a huge unmet need here. We can custom build an organization in Europe uh, just around the epilepsy opportunity. Uh, naturally, we want to actually build in product two, product three, but 
to your earlier question, that's going to take us a little bit of time to figure out what fits. But what we really wanted to do was custom build uh, an organization to take advantage of this opportunity. And for that reason, we felt uh, we could actually do it uh, ourselves because the treatment patterns or treatment referral patterns in Europe for epilepsy are really well defined. The actual number of treatment centers or specialty centers is relatively small. So it's a really concentrated footprint you need to have in order to get at the majority of uh, treatment-resistant patients. And that, that's really our, our uh, core business opportunity. And again, you know, we don't need a huge organization to go after that. So we, we really did feel as though we could do it ourselves. How would you say it was the difference between what you thought it would be like to start and lead a new biopharma company versus your experience having been in some of the world's largest pharma companies? What would you think it would be like? What did it turn out to be? The biggest change for me was, was again, just the range of things you need to do in a small company. Uh, you need to be thinking, you know, everything from, you know, three to four to seven years ahead. So it's got kind of that high level strategic, but you also need to just get the PowerPoints done, get a presentation out to investors, um, uh, you know, do some, you know, schedule some appointments with KOLs. You know, we didn't have an admin staff. And so you're really trying to prioritize across a much larger range of things. And you can't, there's nobody to delegate to. So, you know, it's just, you really got to decide what's important and how, how am I going to make this happen? And then uh, focus uh, on the, the right balance of short and long-term things you get, you've got to uh, get done. What were you hoping to achieve at Arvell that couldn't be done at another company? And, and the things that really stand out uh, as I think back on it is one, uh, working on products that truly bring a differentiated advantage is, is really satisfying. There, there's, you know, if I'm going to be perfectly honest, I've worked on dozens of products, but there's probably only a couple that really made a significant difference. Uh, I think this is one that can do that. The second thing I think about is, um, uh, you know, worked on lots of different teams, led lots of different teams, but there's a few that really stand out. And they stand out because they were populated by people who uh, I felt were really good, highly engaged, uh, but also very collaborative and very willing to, to just sit at the table, put titles aside, and just have a, a really good debate about, well, how do we optimize the situation for our brand? And it, it, it became less about the people or this or politics or how do I get ahead? Da, da, da. And for me, the opportunity to start a new company, to, to have that as a guiding principle um, and to, to really recruit people and, and actually create that culture um, it's just a lot more fun for me at this point in my career where, you know, I, you know, I want to work it, it, one with people I really enjoy and two with, uh, uh, people who really want to help build something special here. In the New York area, of course, and other metropolitan areas, people say, what do you do for a living? And they really want to know how powerful are you? How much, you know, respect should I show to you? And there's a great temptation to say, I'm a very important person. So when you can get past that and people say, Mark, what do you do for a living? How do you like to answer that? To me, it's pretty straightforward. You know, what I do is, uh, you know, I really help develop and, and commercialize medicines for people who, you know, really need improvements in, in their treatments. Um, and, and the reason I like to do that is because at the end of the day, it's, 
it's good intellectual work, it's stimulating. And if you're successful at it, you can look back and, and actually recognize that you have made a difference um, in, in many people's lives. And, and that's just personally satisfying. Do you feel that you have a management approach that works for you? I do think I've got a management approach that works for me. Um, and to the first part of your question, it's it's constantly evolving. And uh, I'm trying not to be too set in my ways. And uh, particularly since, you know, dealing in Europe with uh, a lot of individuals who come from a lot of different backgrounds and cultures, um, you know, I think it requires a little bit more nuanced, adaptive approach. Um but to me, you know, the same fundamentals exist. One is, you know, to be collaborative, collaborative and be a good listener, uh, to be accessible to people, uh, to set, you know, high but appropriate expectations in terms of what we want to do uh, and how we want to think through our opportunities and issues. Uh, and then lastly, you know, really set out a vision, a set of principles, and then uh, abide by those. You know, at the end of the day, if if I actually don't uh, take either positive action and reinforce the good behaviors that are consistent with, the, you know, the vision and how we set up the organization and conversely confront issues when they arise and say that's actually against, you know, the cultural pr principles we've set up, then, uh, you know, it's not going to work. So at the end of the day, it seems pretty simple, but it really requires, you know, on a daily basis, staying attuned to all this stuff and, again, balancing between, you know, which ones are really well in place versus which ones need, you know, some time and attention. I remember I've asked several founders and CEOs what, uh, what their self-image was when they were young folks, little kids, actually. And I remember John Houston, for instance, saying, well, that's easy. I want to be a footballer. And a couple of people from the UK saying, I wanted to be a doctor because the doctor shows were on TV when I was a kid. So... Uh, if you can remember back to being eight, nine, ten years old, something like that, can you remember what your self-image was, what you wanted to be when you grew up? Does it have anything to do with where your life took you? Not at all. <clears throat> and and I, I'm more like John Houston in that, uh, you know, I really wanted to be uh, an Olympic athlete. Which, uh, which uh, kind of Olympic athlete did you picture yourself as being? So I, was, I grew up as a, a ski racer and uh, was very focused on alpine ski racing. That would have been a pretty glamorous life. <laughs> it would have been nice. And it was it was fun for a while till I got 21 and graduated from college. And then, you know, all good things need to come to an end. And I had some bills I had to start to pay. What do you say when people ask, who is Arbel Therapeutics? We're building a company that's going to be a, a specialty neurology company uh, focused here on our opportunity in Europe. Uh, the goal of, of which is to, uh, you know, as, as our first uh, initiative, you know, bring Sonobamate for treatment of refractory epilepsy. And simultaneously, we're going to be looking for, again, other products that we feel can really help uh, address the unmet need that exists uh, across the CNS spectrum. What's new at Arvel Therapeutics? So the newest thing for us is that we filed our MAA. Uh, we're in the midst of our EMA review right now. Uh, and what that means is we're actively um, building out all the launch readiness, all the launch preparation, uh, and frankly, our, our country organizations as well. And so 
we're well on the way to uh, progressing to, to be prepared to take the product to market um, if we have a successful MAA review. When you tell people the RVL story and you realize that they've heard something a bit different than where your vision is, what, what do they miss here and how do you go ahead and say, okay, let me, let me try to explain that? I, I think the biggest thing is uh, when people think about Europe and the uh, possibility of building a successful business in Europe. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, everybody wants a product in the U.S. market. Uh, obviously, pricing is better. There, there are certain payer challenges, obviously, launch challenges in the U.S., uh, but I think those are all magnified here in Europe. And I think people just, um, if they get stuck, they get stuck on trying to understand why would Sonobamate actually be able to compete in a marketplace that's got a couple dozen products um, that are, uh, you know, probably at least uh, 20 of them are generic, you know, so, so why is, is this different than diabetes or lots of other categories where I've seen branded products not do well? Uh, and, and so we walked them back through how we actually got comfortable during our due diligence, how we then made our Series A investors comfortable, uh, how we've continued to refine and build on the hypotheses that we had uh, about why we can actually build a profitable business uh, around Sonobamate in Europe, despite the, uh, the challenges. Um, and the fun part is being able to try to turn people's views and understandings around so that they, they really do see uh, why we were able to create uh, uh, the opportunity in the company uh, Arvel. I think there's three reasons why uh, things work uh, for us specifically here. Uh, first of all, the level of differentiation uh, for Snobamate, particularly on the market's greatest unmet need, which is efficacy, is uh, amazing. In my 30 plus years in the industry, I've just never seen a product this well differentiated against the market's greatest unmet need. So what that means is uh, at the top line, um, you're going to get, and we've seen this in our market research, really high intent to use, so high penetration rates. Uh, on the, the flip side, when you look at the treatment referral patterns, it's really concentrated in Europe. So there's a, a very defined set of uh, centers of excellence or specialty hospitals that treat the more refractory epileptic patients. So we don't need a big commercial footprint. And then the third thing is when you look at branded prices of anti-epileptics in Europe, yeah, there, it's, it's, it's clearly a, a fraction of what you get in the US, uh, but even if you use that, those prices, your P&L works really well because of your high penetration rate and your smaller commercial footprint. And obviously we're going country by country to, to try to figure out how can we get a premium price because we think if there's ever a product that deserved it, uh, it's Sonobamate, again, because it, it really brings uh, distinctive efficacy and, and new hope for seizure freedom to patients. How does the pipeline at Arvel distinguish who the company is, what your vision is? So right now, um, our first focus for the year was really just in getting our uh, MAA applied to, um, to EMA, which we did in March. So now the company is morphing to two different areas. One is there's a number of non-epilepsy indications that may be good opportunities for Sonobamate. 
There's a strong mechanistic rationale and some, some really interesting non-clinical data that suggests that there may be opportunities. So uh, we're, we're actually taking a look at uh, what further clinical work is justified in those different indications. Separately from that, uh, we are looking at, uh, we've, we've compiled our, our hit list of you know, neurology or CNS products that um, have been developed. The clinical risk has been uh, brought down. The regulatory risk in many cases has been brought down. Uh, has not been introduced in Europe, and therefore, as we set up a commercial operation calling on all the key CNS hospitals across Europe, uh, perhaps there's a really good mix. And, and so we're, we're beginning to have those kinds of conversations. Um, but at this point in time, you know, we don't have any, anything specifically in the company um, to point to, but we clearly want to build out and have products two and three and four. What kind of partners make a good fit to Armel? You know, we're working very closely with, you know, some of the advocacy groups, obviously the KOLs, uh, some of the experts in the epileptic area. Um, so, so those kinds of partnerships are really important to us. As we think about additional uh, pipeline products and assets, uh, finding additional partners who uh, recognize the strength we can bring to them uh, with a European commercial focus recognizing the, uh, the development capability we've got in Europe as well as the uh, commercial strength um, would be good. And so partners who don't have that, uh, uh, you know, there's really a potential nice synergy there. Um, and I think the third thing is just, um, you know, we, myself and my two other co-founders uh, came in with, you know, I've got an extensive commercial background. Uh, my CMO has an extensive development regulatory background and my CFO has extensive financial backgrounds. And so between ourselves and the teams that uh, we've all built, you know, we, we think we can offer a lot of expertise on some of the key aspects that uh, smaller companies may not have. And therefore, we could be uh, a really good partner and flesh out uh, in, in the areas that you need to be successful in uh, the biopharma industry. When you're building your team within Arvel, what kind of people thrive? What's the culture that you're that is the right mix? It's people who uh, have a demonstrated track record, achievement oriented, but are collaborative, are good listeners, uh, have the diplomatic skills to 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 be respectful of individuals, uh, so that we can actually get into a position where we can have some really significant uh, disagreements if we need to. Uh, but it doesn't enter into, you know, the personal level. It's just, I really don't agree, John, with how you're thinking about this. I think the world works this way. Therefore, we should have a strategy or, you know, we should invest our money that way. And, and you know, I, I hope we can really mix it up and, and ultimately out of th that process, come out with what we think is the optimal, uh, you know, path forward for us. Um, and, and so it's people who really come in prepared, they take accountability for what they do, um, but they're also willing to, to understand and, and, and enter into that kind of debate and dialogue. So at this stage, you, you are, you're, you're entering a very uh, hopeful stage in the development of a company. Is the focus so immediate and so precise at this point on these next steps that the opportunity is here now or someday in the future to sit 
back for a moment, perhaps on a weekend, and say, you know, if this if this Arvel develops the way I hope it will, I'm really going to do some good in the world. Or is that something you say to yourself, I'm going to, I know it will, and I'll think about that later. No, I, I think it's it's actually a, a piece of the daily motivation. And um, the way we connect with it, you know, a lot of the work we've done in the past year is is reach out to the different investigators. And what's unique about the program that SK ran in the, their development is it was very sequential in nature. And so the investigators themselves had a lot of open label experience, which is really unique. Um, I'm used to a, a world where, you know, you finish up your double blind studies in parallel, you, you run off and file as quickly as possible. Your investigators are trying to guess who was on active, who was on placebo, and, you know, you have those conversations, but they're not necessarily as, as uh, tangible and concrete as they have been in this situation. And I think, uh, you know, the stories we've continued to hear are things like, well, I've been doing trials in epilepsy for 20 or 30 years. This is the best drug I've ever had in, in trials. Let me tell you about patient X or patient Y or patient Z. And you just get really excited about the opportunities Sonobamate has. So we do pause to think about that. Um, we love to have KOLs talk to us or, or reach out to them or, or present at team meetings uh, to help energize folks. But I also think longer term, uh, it'll be super energizing once the product's out there and, and we get a chance to have this broadly used across the population uh, to hear feedback from the marketplace. I mean, I still remember some of the letters I got uh, from patients, you know, across the US, across the, the globe, Latin America's one, for example, on Abilify, who you know commented that it was the first time she had enjoyed the holidays with her family in 15 years uh, because she'd been put on Abilify and it actually really worked for her and helped her. And she was just so thankful to the company for what we did and all of our efforts to, to make that product available to uh, patients like herself. And I think, so there's a, a short-term motivation in, energy we need to get from people who know the drug. Uh, and then there's the, the long-term hope that, you know, in five years we can sit back and say, okay, we really did help uh, the standard of care and the treatment of epilepsy. And, and therefore, you know, hundreds of thousands. And, and obviously if we're super successful, you know, a million plus patients uh, with treatment resistant epilepsy. Mark, can you describe the scope and the impact that the work that you're doing can have on patients in Europe? We estimate that there's 1.6 million treatment-resistant epileptic patients uh, across Europe. And uh, for us, uh, that, that breaks into to three main categories. Focal onset, which is our first indication. There's about a million there. Then there's generalized. Now, that's a, a, a different epileptic condition, but we already have a study ongoing, and, and we expect to be able to uh, file for that in uh, early 23. And then there's a, a bunch of smaller, either pediatric or orphan epileptic syndromes. And those are interesting to us because the molecule may have some activity in that area, but we've got to explore that. Uh, for us, we, we actually, you know, think, uh, you know, our core focus should be on the, the focal onset and then the, the generalized patients. And if we're successful, again, that's, that's how uh, I think our company can ultimately help you know, those, uh, the epileptic patients uh, across Europe who've got uh, treatment-resistant disease. And that's how I come up with an estimate that it could be hundreds of thousands, or if 
if we're super successful, you know, maybe even over a million patients could benefit from uh, our efforts to bring Sonobamate to the market. What's it like for someone born and raised in America to be heading a biopharma company that's based in Europe? So the challenges I face are, um, you, you know, it depends on who you're talking to, and you can see some cynicism um, based on who it is you're talking to. And what I mean by that is um, there are uh, other industry partners who've commented that we're, we're not going to know the market because we're an American and we haven't been born and raised in it. And, and my response is that's why all of our hiring has been focused on people with deep European experience. So the commercial team, the regulatory team, the medical affairs team, uh, you know, everybody is European um, because, uh, you know, we all share at the foundation the, the, the desire to work on a drug as good as uh, Sonobamate. Um, I, I also think there's some cynicism about just, well, here's, here's a couple of Americans who put together a company uh, to try to, uh, you know, make some money here in Europe. And, and, you know, if that's how they want to think about it, that they can, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I've just been doing this a long time. I really get a lot of satisfaction out of bringing good products uh, to the marketplace. And my belief is if you bring good products uh, and you do a good job and the market accepts your product, you know, out of that falls a really nice business. Um, and I'm actually geographically agnostic. Uh, it turns out the opportunity existed in Europe. Uh, the product was great. So it's kind of like, okay, let's put those two together. Wasn't really thinking about uh, anything else on those dimensions. But to your point, you know, sometimes you just got to be ready to, uh, to deal with some, you know, some people who look at you a little bit differently. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, though, Zug is, is a, a very international uh, small little town. Uh, it's right next to Zurich, which is also a very international city. And, uh, you know, for the most part, it's, it's really, it's not been an issue that I've had to deal with. What's it like to face the challenge of being working in an industry where the answers to questions are not clear? And sometimes the questions themselves change all the time. You know, in, in most cases I've been involved in, uh, you know, if your product's really good, the good comes through, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the market finds out the truth about your product. So I'm not afraid at all to tell people up front, here's the things you got to know. Here's how, here's the, the good, here's the bad, here's what you got to get ready for. But at the end of the day, you put all that together. There's a really nice home for this product within the, 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 uh, treatment algorithm for epilepsy, for example. And, and, you know, over time you just peel back one risk two risks, three risks, four risks at a time. And yeah, you got to hopefully just make small little course adjustments. Sometimes they become major and that's just the, the nature of the industry we're in. Uh, but the good news is, you know, if you get out the other end and you get into commercialization, then you've got uh, the opportunity to actually see your drug get used and, and hopefully help a lot of patients. Mark, in what ways is Sonobamate different from other drugs? You know, the thing that really caught our eye uh, was actually it's, you know, to, to really simplify the whole thing, it's just the, the rate of seizure freedom that came out of the, the clinical trials. Um, it, it really had a very high rate of seizure freedom in, in patients who were in the, the treatment resistant category. And we think for that reason, this brings new hope to, to patients who've been unable to get 
seizure-free with the, the dozens of available meds that are out there right now. How do you deal with the complexity of bringing an innovative drug into the marketplace in Europe? As I think back on drug launches I've had in the U.S., which, you know, you've got your own set of complexities. Uh, I, th I think Europe's even much more complex. And what you really need to do is, is uh, break it down into, um, you know, what are the countries going to need to launch? Um, what are the countries going to need to optimally price your product? Um, and you have to go country by country by country. Um, and it, it ends up being, you know, each individual country is, is unique and different in its own special way. And so you really have to be prepared to spend the time to understand the details of their process, their country, uh, the nuances that you need to put in place and how to adapt your, your core plans. And you just got to be ready to embrace the, uh, uh, the uh, complications and the extra work required to do that. Um, and, and, you know, you can't just come up with a pan-European strategy. It's country by country by country. So you just get ready to uh, find the right people who can help you find those right country nuances. Uh, and you just put the time in against, you know, your key priority countries. When people ask, how can Arvell take this on and bring this forward? How do you like to answer that? So for me, uh, you know, that's a question we had to answer for ourselves uh, as we were even thinking about putting the company together. You know, is this something we could do? Um, you know, because at the end of the day, uh, I, I actually want to build a company that actually pulls it all the way through through commercialization. I, I think with this, uh, with the um, the focus of Sinobamate on the treatment-resistant population with uh, a, a small uh, universe of uh, specialist centers across the EU uh, 20 that we need to focus on, uh, the actual size of the organization we need, we've done a lot of work to, to estimate what that is, uh, is actually relatively small. Um, and for that reason, uh, I feel very confident that we'll, we'll be able to find the people to stand up this organization. I think, you know, being essentially a year and a half into it, the good news for us is uh, the, the people we, we talk to who actually want uh, an entrepreneurial experience uh, versus a big farmer experience, um, uh, you know, when they see the quality of the asset, they, they also get excited about it. And they, they see that this then presents a good opportunity in the right time for them to actually potentially move from a, a large or mid-sized company to a small startup. One, to give them that experience. Two, to help, you know, paint the whiteboard and, and, and flesh that, what the organization looks like. But also with the, the comfort and the confidence that we've got a great asset to, uh, to bring to the market. Is there an issue, is there uh, an initiative within the biopharma community that's especially important to you that you would like to share at that? So for, for me, I, um, I, I probably tend to be an optimistic person uh, to begin with. Uh, I also, uh, I'm just impressed with, you know, I, I've been in the business since the 80s in the progress we've made in understanding biology, developing new drugs and new approaches is, is just phenomenal. And, and I think that is going to continue. And my hope is that we, we figure out how some way uh, to ensure that that whole innovation engine continues because in another 20 years or another 40 years, um, you know, again, millions of 
people will benefit from that process. And I would just hate to see that short-circuited somehow in us not to be able to figure out how, how as a society, we're going to pay for innovation um, because I, I'm just so impressed with how much innovation we've had. And uh, I really want to see it continue. Thanks for making time to speak with me today, Mark. Well, you're welcome, John. Thanks for the opportunity to speak with you and uh, all the thoughtful questions. Thanks so much. I've been working with founders and CEOs on their company's storytelling and branding for a long time, and I have an idea of how challenging and rewarding their work can be. When I speak with a veteran biopharma executive like Mark Altmaier, it's reassuring to hear him look back on his work with satisfaction, knowing he delivered medicines to patients who need them, and to see his delight in building something new. I hear joy in his voice when he says, it's just a lot more fun for me at this point in my career. I want to work with people I really enjoy, with people who really want to help build something special here. Mark also sounded like the voice of experience when he told me, the market finds out the truth about your product. So I'm not afraid at all to tell people up front, here's the things you've got to know. Here's the good, here's the bad, here's what you've got to get ready for. Mark also carries his sense of optimism into his hopes for biopharma as a whole. He told me, I've been in the business since the 80s and the progress we made in understanding biology, developing new drugs and new approaches is just phenomenal. My hope is that we figure out some way to ensure that innovation engine continues because in another 20 or 40 years, millions of people will benefit from that process. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss.